0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Carrie Lynn, welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm looking forward to sharing with you Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds by Joseph Laycock. The 1980s saw the peak of a moral panic over fantasy role-playing games such as Dungeons and Dragons. A coalition of moral entrepreneurs that included representatives from the Christian right, the field of psychology, and law enforcement claimed that these games were not only psychologically dangerous, but an occult religion masquerading as a game. Dangerous Games explores both the history and the sociological significance of this panic. Fantasy role-playing games do share several functions in common with religion. However, religion, as a socially constructed world of shared meaning, can also be compared to fantasy role-playing games. In fact, the claims of the moral entrepreneurs, in which they presented themselves as heroes battling a dark conspiracy, often resembled the very games of imagination they condemned as evil. By attacking the imagination, they preserved the taken for granted status of their own socially constructed reality. Interpreted in this way, the panic over fantasy role playing games yields new insight about how humans play and how they construct and maintain meaningful worlds together. Joseph Laycock is an associate professor of religious studies at Texas State University. He's written several books on new religious movements and American religious history, including one on the Satanic Temple. He is also a co editor for the journal Nova Religio. He's with me today to talk about. A pretty new book. One. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Joseph Laycock to talk about his book, Dangerous Games. Joe was actually with us on the show back in April to talk about his book, Speak of the Devil, about the Satanic Temple. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I do highly recommend you go back to it and find it and listen to it. Um, The work that uh, the Satanic Temple is doing in the United States and their story of how they came about is really interesting. Um, But if you did listen to it, you probably Noticed that I mentioned that I was really interested in coming back to Joe's book on um, dangerous games, The Satanic Panic, and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and other role playing games, partly just because I'm really interested in The Satanic Panic. I grew up at the tail end of it, Um, I thought it was ridiculous then. Uh, I do even more so now, Uh, but, and also I had friends that played D and D I dabbled a little bit myself. And so I just really found this book interesting, interesting and really wanted to come back to it. And Joe was gracious enough to be willing to do so. And I think we didn't actually do an episode back in 2015 when the book originally came out. Um, And it's probably new to many of you as well, even though um, technically it's not the newest book on the shelf, but we don't mind. So Joe, thank you so much for coming back.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So for listeners who didn't have a chance to tune into April yet on Speak of the Devil, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about your background and how you came to work in this field.
0: Sure. Uh, I am an associate professor of religious studies at Texas State University, and I am a co-editor for the journal Nova Religio. Uh, So I study American religion and new religious movements, And one of the things I've come to focus on is uh, moral panic, which is a sociological phenomenon where people think that uh, something or other is kind of out to get us. Uh, And so that's a that's a through line in a lot of my different research projects.
1: Great. Okay. so, yeah, tell us how this particular book came into being. Well, I was
0: born in 1980 and I grew up uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons in Texas Uh, And I would encounter adults regularly who felt that this was a really evil, satanic uh, game. Uh, And at the the time, I couldn't really articulate it. But that was kind of my first inkling that uh, adults are not infallible, right? Adults don't actually necessarily know uh, what they're talking about. Uh, And I don't think I was able to fully articulate what I had to say about Dungeons & Dragons, uh, until you know, I got a Ph.D. right, and, and really done training in the sociology of religion. Uh, and so my, you know, my after I, I completed my degree, uh, my first book was my dissertation, which was about um, Marian apparitions. But after that was out, I really felt now I can work on a project that um, I'm, I'm passionate about, and, and that became Dangerous Games.
1: Excellent. So let's start with the basics. Assuming that there are those in our audience who aren't actually really familiar with Dungeons and Dragons or other role-playing games, which, by the way, are also referred to as RPGs, uh, what are these all about? Is it when you dress in costumes in the woods to beat up your friends?
0: Right. <laughs> um, so That is the thing people do um, that's, that's commonly called live-action role-playing or, or LARPing, and that can be either... Um, purely um, uh, sort of dramatic, or it can actually be combative, uh, and I did that too growing up in Texas, and got you know uh, beat up in in the woods with foam axes and things like that. Um, but Dungeons and Dragons is what's called a tabletop role playing game, so you usually sit around a, a table, and it uses uh, dice, and there's lots of, of paper and books, and, and sometimes miniatures and things like that. Um, but all of these games, at their core, are um, really just highly evolved forms of simple games like cops and robbers that children naturally uh, play on the playground uh, all by themselves, right? Um, In studies of play, you don't have to teach children how to pretend they are their parents and sort of mimic their parents' uh, actions. This is something that human beings do uh, naturally. Um, The difference, right, is that if, uh, you know, a kid on the playground points his index finger and says, I shot you, uh, the other kid may say, well, you missed, or, or I have armor on, or, or whatever, and it becomes a, a an argument. So all the apparatus of a role-playing game, the rules, the dice, and things like this, are all ways to kind of adjudicate um, how this kind of game of imagination unfolds. And the origin of all of this is uh, actually military simulations, right? So Dungeons & Dragons was published in 1974, but it came out of a culture of people who like to Uh, uh, simulate, you know, Gettysburg and these other kind of famous historical uh, military battles, and they gradually began adding fantasy elements. So, you know, what if there had been a dragon at the siege of Leningrad or something like this? And over time, this evolves into what we know today as Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Great. So I wanted to ask you, too, about a really interesting term you use throughout your book. You talk about a set of folks you refer to as moral entrepreneurs. And I think this is such a good term. It's fairly self-explanatory, but would you flesh it out for us a bit?
0: Sure. So this is a term used by sociologists to describe uh, people who have some sort of public pulpit, um, whether that is through the media or through the church or something like this, who are, um, you know, claims makers, right, are telling people kind of what uh, are the threats to the society and what we uh, need to, to do about it. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, they, you could be a moral entrepreneur, and you could be talking about something that's, that's a real problem. Uh, but more often, this is used to describe people who are kind of um, rallying people up about a problem that's either not there, or the danger has been greatly um, exaggerated. So there's lots of examples um, of this throughout history. One a lot of audience members might be familiar with is the Red Scare in the 1950s, right? It took a, it took a specialized group of people to convince everyone that uh, subversive communists were uh, a serious threat.
1: Okay, good. So before we get into the the meat of it, there's a little bit more fleshing out I wanted to do before we started, and that's about the relevant theory behind the work that you're doing. What kind of academic work has already been done on analyzing games generally, game behavior, and what might that tell us about role-playing games?
0: So there's an entire field of ludology. Ludology is the study of play, uh, and I'm not a. I don't consider myself a, a, a ludologist. Um, but I, I read some of the foundational works of that field. Um, one of these is a, actually a medievalist named Johann Huizinga, and Huizinga's argument is basically that all human culture, including religion, uh, originates in play. And this idea was expanded upon uh, by Robert Bella uh, in his last book about the origins of religion. But the argument you know, goes something like this: um, You know, Robert Bella pointed out that all Mammals and some birds engage in play behaviors. It's a natural uh, behavior. And Huizenga pointed out that when we are in play, we are kind of spontaneously creating social realities. So if you take kids and you put them in a playground and you say, go play, within about five minutes, they will have created a game for themselves. And there will be rules for the game. And they might even be upset if someone you know, breaks the rules that they, that they just made up. And Huizinga's argument is that culture is basically some of these social realities that were created in play that kind of uh, crystallized and got stuck and became, uh, if you will, games that we play all the time. And so he would say ritual and religion are an example of this, that he thinks these originated in play. But even things that we think are diametrically opposed to play, like war, Huizinga would say, well, actually, most cultures conceive of war as having rules and things that you do and, and things that you don't do uh, and and so forth. Um, so so that would be a, a foundational text in Ludology. There is a lot of work being done right now on role-playing games and trying to kind of uh, theoretically assess, are these games uh, an art form? Uh, some people have said that they are an art form, but they are directed not towards an audience, but inwards, so towards uh, each other. Um, some people said, well, they're more like, narrative storytelling than an art form. Um, so a lot of this um, you know, uh, theoretical framework being applied to role-playing games is, is still going on right now and it's still very fresh. Well,
1: that's very cool. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's go back to a little bit of history then. Tell us about how Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs more generally came into existence and did they have any precursors? What was it that you think made them catch on at the beginning?
0: Right, so I mentioned uh, military simulation. So around the time of the Enlightenment, um, especially uh, uh, Prussia began having these really accurate maps and training their military officers and how to basically move troops around and things like this as as part of training for for, for warfare. Uh, and you know they they said, well, you know, games like chess are not really going to provide the kind of training that we need, so we need to get. More and more into the actual variables of things like rough terrain and how fast can a unit move and supply lines and things like this, uh, but but then no matter how much they built up the model, uh, the human imagination would always come in and an officer would say, well, I want my I want my soldiers to do this and there's no rules for that, and so eventually they said, well, we're going to have a, a, a veteran officer with more experience adjudicate, right? And you two will will compete against each other and then if you want to try something fancy. Uh, they'll step in and they'll just they'll just give a ruling. So this was really the beginning of military simulation. Uh, and then this gradually filtered down to civilians. Uh, so civilians who were not in the military, but wanted to uh, recreate or replay one of these battles using you know little miniature pieces that they would move around on a map uh, would take this up as a hobby. And it was mostly a hobby played by uh, white male college students in the 60s. Uh, and then in the University of Minnesota, which was a big hub for all of this, they tried to do a game where instead of having two sides in a, in a war, uh, there were four or five different factions. And so it was supposed to be the siege of a town called Bronstein in the Napoleonic era. And each player was assigned to be uh, a different kind of figure in the town. So someone was, you know, the the head of the college and things like this. And uh, it turned into a total uh, chaotic uh, uh, mess. And I think the, the two generals said, well, we don't want to use our soldiers. We want to fight a duel. Uh, and the person who organized said this was a total failure. And the players said, no, that was really fun. We want to do more games like this where we get to kind of play uh, uh, characters and be more imaginative instead of just sort of moving soldiers around uh, uh, on a map. Um, and so that was combined with um, fantasy elements like dragons because these people were all reading uh, uh, Tolkien, uh, which was one of the, the, the outcomes of the 1960s counterculture and the interest in, in fantasy. And, and then they said, well, you know, I want to play the same character over and over again, and wouldn't my character get uh, uh, stronger, right, and, and more skillful if, as they keep uh, uh, surviving all of these adventures? And so then we got uh, things like your character levels up and your character has Hit points that reflect how much damage they can take, and your character has armor class. And these ideas, even to people who've never played Dungeons and Dragons, are now uh, have totally saturated so many types of uh, computer and video games and, and things like this that um, nearly everybody is familiar with them. You know, most Americans or, or North Americans, if you were say the phrase level up, would have some idea of, of what you mean.
1: Yeah, that's funny. My, um, my boomer parents just asked me to explain what level up was to them. And I, uh, assumed it came from video games. I think it's great that video game, computer games, which of course came later would have taken these ideas and turned them into, uh, into the visual or the, um, digital medium. Um, so you suggest there are actually some useful ways that dungeons and dragons can be compared with religion. Um, so, not in the way that moral panickers would have one believe, of course, but in ways that are interesting nonetheless. So, what kind of substantive elements of religion can be found in d and d?
0: Right. So it's interesting because there's there's no real need for religion to be in a fantasy game. You know, people who have read The Lord of the Rings have noticed that religion is kind of absent in those stories, at least at, at first first blush. Um, but Gary Gygax, who was one of the inventors of, of D&D, along with his partner, David Arneson, were both very religious people in their, their personal lives. Gary Gygax appears to have been uh, a Jehovah's Witness, at least for some of his life. And David Arneson appears to have been an evangelical who did uh, missionary work. And so when they began making these character classes, which are supposed to be kind of archetypal heroes, so you know, wizard and a and, uh, warrior and things like this. One of the first character classes that Gary Gygax created was a cleric or basically a a holy person, someone who performs uh, uh, miracles. And if you look at the spells that clerics can cast, especially in the older versions of the game, these are all directly from the Bible. Um, So there is a spell called sticks to snakes, right? This is obviously a reference to Um, uh, Exodus, right, where Moses gets in this uh, battle with the the Egyptian uh, uh, court magicians, Uh, there is a spell that summons two bears that will go and fight for you. This is a reference to uh, an obscure passage in, I think, 2 Kings, uh, where the prophet Elijah is mocked by children and and summons bears to eat the children uh, for mocking a prophet of God. Um, So all of these kinds of biblical elements were put in there unnecessarily. Uh, however, Gary Gygax didn't want to um, directly insert Christianity into these fantasy worlds uh, because he he felt that um, you know Christianity was real and fantasy was not and they shouldn't be directly connected. Uh, so instead, there were these kinds of imaginary pantheons of gods. And one of the first books that they made for Dungeons and Dragons in the seventies uh, basically just had uh, a different pantheons of gods from world mythology and rules for putting them into your game. Um, so there would be things like if you wanted your adventurers to go fight Thor, there were rules for uh, Thor or Zeus or Ra and even, you know, a Mesoamerican or uh, Asian pantheons that people were less familiar with. So I think for a lot of young people playing this game, it really was Uh, A kind of crash course in biblical studies and and comparative religion. And I actually think that there's a significant number of religion professors today, uh, who first began thinking about these topics through Dungeons and Dragons in, in the 1980s.
1: How ironic. So you make a really interesting comparison, too, about the ways both RPGs and religions are focused on vicarious, um, or vicariously experiencing an idealized time and place, and that this can, in turn, give participants a new perspective on the real world, so to speak. So can you elaborate on that idea?
0: Sure. So I have two kind of theoretical influences here. One of these is uh, Mircea Eliada. Uh, and Eliade, uh, of course, a very famous uh, scholar of comparative religion in the 1960s um, and, and did a lot of foundational work for the field. Uh, today, Eliade has kind of fallen out of favor. Right. And if, in fact, I think if you mention Eliade to a typical graduate student in religious studies, they will kind of roll their eyes, right? And say, oh, no, not, not Eliade. Don't you know that that's unprovable? And his books are religious really poetry for religious studies and, and things like this. Uh, because Eliade thought that there were these kind of universal patterns uh, in, in, in religion. And, and for him, one of those patterns was the idea that there is a kind of sacred time outside of time, uh, that humans are always trying to reconnect to uh, through ritual, because Eliade said humans are driven by what he called ontological thirst, right? That the world that we live in is confusing and unsatisfying and vague, and we want to reconnect with some other time that was mythic, where where things really uh, uh, had meaning. Um, and I don't think that Eliade's theories are very good for uh, trying to interpret texts from other times and other cultures. I I, I would say uh, if we discover some religious texts it's thousands of years old in, in Asia, we should not pick up Eliade and begin using that as a framework for understanding it. But uh, Eliade, uh, you know, I think he really tapped into how people in the 1960s and 70s in the West, in America, thought about uh, uh, the past and thought about the sacred and thought about religion. Um, and so I think, Uh, Eliade's theory applies to Dungeons and Dragons. I actually think that his ideas about trying to connect with uh, a sacred time and ontological thirst uh, captures something of the reason that a lot of people liked games like this, especially in the 1970s when uh, people were looking for an escape, right? When people were watching the Vietnam War every night on, on the news and had lost faith in their institutions, Uh, I I don't think it's a coincidence that all of that was going on in the 70s. And this is also the decade that gave us, you know, Renaissance festivals and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and other kind of uh, attempts to escape into a romanticized past. So that's one strain of theory that I use in the book. The other um, concerns what's called the Axial Age. And this is another idea that uh, Robert Bella uh, was very interested in in the sociology of religion. Uh, But the idea of the Axial Age is basically that most um, ancient cultures had uh, religions that focused very much on this world, and you sort of honored the gods and you did the religions, you have benefits in this world, and that at a certain point, uh, religions began to focus on a different world, an imagined alternative world, and the focus began to be about soteriology and salvation, not getting benefits in this life. And there are a lot of theories about why this happened. Um, And the simplest explanation may just be, uh, if your culture is producing enough food to have a bunch of people who just sit around and think all day, (laughs) they will inevitably um, create some kind of uh, a philosophy of a transcendent reality. But the reason that this is interesting to sociologists is that once you have an idea of another reality, the ability to kind of imagine the kingdom of heaven or, you know, the, the Tao or, or uh, some transcendent reality like this, this has tremendous effects on the social order, right? Um, and one of those is you can now speak truth to power, right? So in a pre-axial culture, the theory goes, there's kind of no way to tell the the king or the emperor, uh, I disagree with you, you know, I, your authority is not absolute, uh, but if you have an idea of a transcendent reality, you can say, you know, you've, you have sinned against the Lord, right? Uh, you, are, you are a false leader, and there is, a, there is a greater power than you. So it creates a, a kind of social instability when there is this idea of a transcendent order. And to me, I think this is the most interesting thing about role-playing games, is that even though these fantasy worlds that people create together playing these games are imaginary, uh, it kind of creates a mental space to reassess the world and question things that you have been uh, socialized to to take for granted. Uh, and so, in that way, I think role playing games function similarly to these religions of the axial age. They, they they create a kind of radical autonomy and an ability to imagine the world uh, in in ways that it could be instead of ways uh, that that it is. Uh, So uh, in in that sense, I think uh, games like Dungeons and Dragons are actually uh, quite serious and can have serious consequences.
1: So let's turn to the origins of the moral panic in the 1970s. You described the decade as being rife with collective paranoia. That's a quote from your book there. And it seems like there were a number of factors here creating a tinderbox that was ignited by uh, the James Dallas Egbert debacle. So tell us about all this.
0: Sure. As I said, I think the 70s, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but it's, it's you know, remembered by historians of American religion as sort of a great decade for uh, disillusionments, for conspiracy theories. Uh, in my field of new religious movements, this was also a decade where we were very afraid of cults. And there is some suggestion that groups like Uh, The Unification Church and the Children of God and the International Society for Krishna Consciousness groups that were dubbed cults were successful in part because there was a really active counterculture who was really unhappy with the direction that America seemed to be uh, going in. Um, And and so the fear of cults really shaped uh, the way that people came to understand Dungeons and Dragons, right? So the sort of referee for a game of Dungeons and Dragons is traditionally known as the Dungeon Master. And I think when people heard the word dungeon master, that resonated with stories they had heard about uh, cult leaders, right? Sort of uh, the idea of an omnipotent cult leader who has total control over the minds uh, of their their followers. Uh, So this all came to a head um, with a a student uh, named um, uh, James Dallas Egbert. Uh, He entered college at only 16. Um, He was um, gay, but not out. Uh, He was uh, making his own drugs in his dorm room. Uh, He had depression. He had had a lot of problems. Uh, And he was also interested in Dungeons and Dragons. And he disappeared from school. And there was a search for him. And his parents hired this very flamboyant private detective uh, named William Deer uh, to to track him down. And William Deer had a, a press conference and said, I know what happened to Dallas uh, Dallas played so much Dungeons and Dragons that he had a complete psychotic break with reality, and wandered into the steam tunnels under the the school, uh, believing that he is a warrior in some sort of medieval fantasy world. And I have to sort of track him down and, and find him. And after he made this announcement, his parents got a phone call from Dallas, who said, "Yeah, I just I I, I, I was under a lot of pressure at school, and I'm I'm in Louisiana now. And can you please come pick me up?" Uh, so nothing that William did did or said, (laughs) led to Dallas's uh, uh, recovery. Uh, And sadly, uh, a few years later, Dallas uh, committed suicide and and was successful. But that press release put the idea in people's heads that uh, if you play Dungeons & Dragons, you will eventually dissociate from reality. And so when I grew up in the 1980s, that was a real fear that people had. And when I told uh, adults that one of my hobbies was playing Dungeons & Dragons, that was often the first thing I would hear was, don't you know if you play it too much, uh, you'll, you'll lose your mind and you won't know what's, what's real anymore.
1: Yeah. G, um the deer uh, episode is really quite, uh, you use the word flamboyant. His book is quite flamboyant. His claims and his activities leading up to the book he published on that uh, is also fairly flamboyant. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, those wild details as well as then how do you think he was received? How was his book received? And do you think um, it had a lot of influence or barely any influence on the moral panic that that was kind of already happening anyway.
0: Sure. So so William Deere is an interesting guy. He seems drawn to anything uh, uh, controversial that might kind of make him famous. So in the 90s, he appeared in the alien autopsy uh, footage on Fox. Uh, I think his most recent book is called O.J. is Innocent and I Can Prove It. Uh, so he's sort of drawn to controversy and uh, is, uh, you know, it, it tells a lot of things about his background that journalists have expressed uh, skepticism over. So he says, well, I'm, I'm known as the real James Bond and shows this journalist how he has a concealed compartment in his boot and knives come out of it and things like this. Um, and so he wrote a book called The Dungeon Master, um, basically saying that his theory was correct, right? that that's, uh, uh, Dallas really had uh, lost his mind and crawled into the steam tunnels uh, and and sort of saying, you know, th- this is this is what I think happened kind of based on his own uh, imagination. Um, I don't know how well received that book was. The parents, uh, of course, were very upset because by this point their son had committed suicide and they were saying, you know, you can't really remember these conversations from years ago when we hired you. You're just you're just making all of this up. Uh, I think what really uh, fueled this, this idea that uh, Dungeons and Dragons could produce dissociative uh, states was actually a bit before the Dungeon Master, there was a novel by Rona Jaffe called Mazes and Monsters, which was admittedly a novel, but it was sort of, if, if this had really happened, what would this look like? And Mazes and Monsters was adapted into a made-for-TV movie starring a young Tom Hanks in the 80s, and I'm sure it's the sort of thing Tom Hanks wishes could just be erased. <laughs> we would all forget about, but if you go to YouTube or something, you can type in mazes and monsters and you can see this. And so that really kind of showed Americans, this is what this would look like uh, if you're a, a teenager, uh, totally dissociated from reality, from, from these fantasy games. So, so I do think that that, um, you know, that that made this a real possibility for a lot of Americans, even if they didn't really know much about Dungeons and Dragons, they had, they had heard the story uh, somewhere.
1: Okay. So now we move into the 1980s. This is the decade that saw the height of this satanic panic. And basically, all the fears that had been brewing about drugs, psychological manipulation, cults, all of this began to be ascribed a new dimension as being literally powered by the devil. Is that right? Uh, What is all this about?
0: Yeah, so I I think that in many ways, the, the panic over satanic cults in the 80s was a continuation of the, the the anti-cult movement of the 1970s. The only difference was, the so-called cults of the 1970s at least really existed. Uh, the satanic cults in in the panic of the 80s did not exist, right? So, so the claim in the 1980s was, there is a vast criminal network of thousands of Satanists that they kill tens of thousands of people a year in human sacrifices, uh, that they uh, 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 torture children. And the torture is so profound that the children don't remember it, so it has to be recovered through hypnosis. Uh, this led to the McMartin preschool trial, right, where a small family owned uh, preschool was accused of having uh, basically satanic torture dungeons in secret passages under the, the preschool. Uh, the family was imprisoned for seven years before the trial finally ended and they were exonerated. It was the most expensive trial in American history. Uh, at the time. Uh, and sociologists still ask, you know, what was it about the 80s that made us kind of lose our collective minds um, over, over Satanism? And there's a number of, of answers. Um, one of those was kind of the awareness of child abuse that we had not had in the 60s and 70s. Uh, some people have said that with the switch to a, uh, a two-income family, um, there was a reluctance to uh, send children off to things like daycare Uh, But it was it was financially necessary. Uh, And so it felt true that the daycare was actually a satanic cult, even if it was not uh, uh, literally true. Uh, So so we really don't know. But this came to color uh, the fears about Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, they began saying, well, there are uh, literally uh, demons in this game or there were claims like the game was actually designed by Satanists to lure uh, young people into the occult. Uh, uh, and these claims became loud enough that uh, in some cases, uh, for example, in, in Virginia, which was a big center for a lot of this activity, uh, someone ran for state attorney and their, their platform was, if I'm elected, I will ban Dungeons and Dragons from uh, from schools. Um, so that was another dimension of this was it was always the Satanists are coming for our children. That was a common theme throughout the 1980s. And this is how they're they're going to do it with this game. Uh, and the game was going to specifically target smart kids, gifted kids, because those are the ones that Satan most wanted to recruit uh, to prepare for the apocalypse. Right. With this army of kind of corrupted, brilliant children. So it was it was quite a mythology that that I was living through at the time.
1: Yeah, I'll say the entire time I was reading your book, I'd be like, oh, my God, my husband was like, what's the matter? I'm just like, oh, it's it's nothing. It's just the nonsense of the 80s. (laughs) It's just getting to me. Um, So tell us more specifically about Patricia Pullings and her activities. She's basically just a con artist, isn't she? And yet she managed to insinuate herself to an incredible degree with like law enforcement, education, and so on. So what's going on with her?
0: Right. So Patricia Pullings' uh, son uh Irving, but he went by the nickname Bink, uh, committed suicide in 1982. And I I I was living in Virginia that she's from she's from uh Richmond uh when I was doing this research and I actually um did some sleuthing and I, I talked to some people who were involved in a Dungeons and Dragons game uh with with Bink uh and basically he, he was an honor student so there's that trope again of Satan coming for the honor students and the honors English class sort of at the end of class as a reward would play Dungeons and Dragons. And they estimated that he only ever actually played, you know, a, a handful of times in his whole life. Um, when he committed suicide, he used his mother's handgun and he, he did it on the front porch knowing that his family would come home. And the first thing that they would find was his body. Um, so, I mean, the, there's a lot to say about this, but I think that, uh, pulling, uh, naturally felt, you know, wondered whether she was responsible for her son's suicide. And I think rather than kind of take that question head on, um, retreated to this narrative where, uh, the the game was responsible for her son's death. The, The game had made, uh, her son kill himself. And in fact, uh, in, in, in the game he had been playing, there was some plot device for one of the characters was a werewolf and was going to kill people during the next full moon or something like this. And what Pulling turned this into was that the game had kind of psychologically programmed my son to kill his entire family. And the only way that he could overcome or thwart that programming was to take his own life. So in fact, my son didn't commit suicide at all. Uh, my son saved the family right? From, from this game. And I think that a lot of her efforts uh, were kind of, if she could prove this to other people, then she could prove it to herself, right? So, so I really do think that a lot of what she did was motivated by guilt, uh, but she formed a group called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons or BAD uh, and and became this network. And of course, BAD is supposed to sound like MAD, which is Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? And And so... Uh, Patricia Pulling had an associate's degree, but she had really no formal training of, of any kind. Um, but what, what kind of convinced people that what she was saying was true was her narrative, right? Of I am a bereaved mother, right? How could you, how could you doubt me? Don't you have faith in, in, in mothers? Um, but some of the things that she would claim bordered on comical. So there was one interview with a Richmond journalist, and she said that 8% of the population of Richmond were Satanists. And the journalist responded, so you're saying there's more Satanists than Methodists in Richmond. How are you getting these numbers? And she said, well, 4% of the children are Satanists and 4% of the adults are Satanists. This is 8%. <laughs> um, and of course, this is not how uh, uh, numbers work. Um, but she became considered an expert on so-called occult crime. And so expanded from talking about the, the satanic origins of Dungeons and Dragons to uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and police would hold these seminars on occult crime in the 1980s, and they they would pay someone like Patricia Pulling with, you know, taxpayer money to come in and tell the police all of this kind of nonsense, and sometimes uh, these presentations would involve, you know, a fake satanic altar with a fake skull and black candles and things like that uh, uh, on it, and it became a kind of, Uh, self-fulfilling cycle, right? So they would say, well, how do you know Patricia Pulling is an expert? They say, well, because the police invited her to lecture on a cult crime, right? And and they invited her because she's an expert. And so there is no actual uh, bottom to this alleged uh, uh, expertise. Um, She would also uh, volunteer as an expert witness in any court case where she could say Dungeons and Dragons makes people crazy, Um, including by the end of the 80s, people would commit very um, mundane crimes, including things like robbing a gas station and their defense would be, I'm not responsible. I was driven insane by Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and this was never successful as far as I know. However, uh, Patricia pulling and a few other people were always willing to come in no matter how ridiculous the claim was and testify that yes, this game absolutely does do this. And no, this person is not responsible for robbing a gas station. They thought the gas station was, you know, an, an orc fortress or, or something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was a real character, but but her claims were very powerful, especially when she first started, uh, because there was really no opposition, right? Nobody had the resources or the platform uh, to, to counter the things that she was saying.
1: And so she ended up being, uh, uh, you know, aiding these criminals from trying to, to avoid responsibility in the end. My goodness. Um, so how did the gaming community respond to her? Or did they?
0: Well, I mean, the the irony is that all of these controversies were really good for the sales of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Every time somebody went up and said, uh, "This is this is driving people uh, uh, crazy," uh, college kids would now get very curious, right, and want to go buy a, a Dungeons and Dragons set and 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 try it out. Uh, and I think this is a kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon with with moral panic, right? The moral entrepreneurs are usually the things they do are not directly uh conducive to stamping out the thing they say they are threatened by um, there's almost a kind of symbiotic relationship between whatever the the the, the alleged threat is whether that's heavy metal music or Dungeons and dragons or, or whatever and the people saying don't go buy this don't learn about it don't don't uh, experiment with it because it's 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 evil um but eventually uh, a group formed called the the committee for the advancement of role-playing games um who uh, wanted to oppose people like Patricia Pulling and BAD um, and basically just debunk their their claims. Uh, and they were uh, pretty good at doing this, right? Because most of the claims were nonsensical and lazy and could be debunked uh, pretty easily. And when they began actually uh, getting motivated... Uh, and and getting organized, um, they they were pretty good at kind of embarrassing people about these kinds of things. So for example, uh, Patricia Pulling had made a kind of mimeographed guide that she would give to police departments for interrogating people who played Dungeons and Dragons. And the questions were just absurd. It said things like, you know, you need to figure out which one is the dungeon master because they're controlling everything. And, And if they say uh, we take turns being the Dungeon Master, that's, that's they're lying, right? You need to get through that. Uh, one of the questions was ask them if they'd ever read the Necronomicon, which is, of course, an imaginary uh, book from the writings of, of, of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and so the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games went to a local police station and said, can I please see the document that you've received from Patricia Pulling? And they basically said, there's no such document. And they had to kind of use their network to get a friendly police officer who played Dungeons and Dragons to basically leak the document to them. Uh, but once those kinds of things came to light, uh, the opposition to Dungeons and Dragons came to seem like uh, lunatics um, in, in pretty short order. So uh, it, it was a case of kind of standing up to a bully and and being successful.
1: Excellent. So let's move on to the 90s now um, and look at how fears in this decade had shifted from satanic cults to concerns more generally about urban youth violence and the Goths. So it sounds like there were some exciting new RPGs coming out at this time, but the same old problems with some folks blaming the world's ills on them, including even some run-ins with the FBI. So what's going on here?
0: so in the in the 90s uh you had a new generation of role-playing games and these game designers sort of didn't have the the fear uh, of being shut down for being associated with uh with satanism and things like that so they could do edgier topics and also gary gygax always imagined dungeon dragons would be uh you know taught in schools to gifted children and things like this he kind of aimed it more at, at, at children um, so a company formed in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or Stone Mountain, Georgia, rather, called uh, White Wolf. and they made games about vampires and werewolves and magic. and they were very dark games with grown up themes like you know, drug abuse and and, and things like this. And they were aimed for college students, right? These were never intended to be played by uh, uh, children. Um, but the 90s also saw this fear of so-called super predators. Uh, and it's interesting because crime rates were falling rapidly in the '90s, but uh, there was this fear that the the uh, sort of ghettos of American cities were full of uh, a, a generation of completely uh, sociopathic uh, uh, young people with armed with, with with cheap guns, and that this was always framed as a ticking time bomb, right? Of these these this generation of so-called super predators is is coming for us. And in 1996, uh, both Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, both uh, uh, parties said, I will protect America from the super predators if you elect me. And of course there were no super predators and what nobody was saying was when we say super predators, we mean black teenagers, <laughs> right? Nobody wanted to say that. So they, they just kind of kept using sort of dog whistles to indicate what types of people um, they were uh, They were talking about. Um, so there was this idea, this ideology that are um, the teenagers are gonna come kill us, right? Not because they've been brainwashed by a cult or they're Satanists, but they're, they're just evil. Uh, there was a book called Body Counts about the super predators and it just said, um, they were born in a, a moral poverty. They, they don't know right from wrong and they never will. And we have to basically just jail them all and start over with a new generation. Uh, and so when you did have teenagers committing crimes, uh, there was It was ripe for moral panic. It was ripe for seeing these not as an isolated incident, uh, but as kind of the tip of the iceberg. And this was going to happen all over America. So one of the key examples of this was in 1996, uh, a teenager named Rod Farrell uh, from Kentucky uh, drove to the home of his ex-girlfriend in Florida and murdered her parents. And he had played this vampire role-playing game. Uh, and immediately, the narrative formed of you know that this game drives uh, people to murder. Um, all all uh, sort of the entire goth uh, subculture um, are ticking time bombs. Are going to, to to murder us? And in a lot of ways, everything kind of started all over again. Um, and even after uh, Columbine, which was in 1998 and kind of begun the era of of uh, mass shootings in schools. The day after Columbine, people said, well, this is because of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, neither of the shooters at Columbine played Dungeons & Dragons, but the, the narrative was uh, ready at hand by by that point. And I think what finally ended the the debate about role-playing games was actually 9-11. Uh, because 9-11, 2001, it, it was just too much of a real problem to worry about uh, what the goth kids were, were, were doing anymore. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the, I, I, I think the last straw that, that set that panic aside. And we have since shifted into a, uh, a whole new uh, genre of, of moral panics. We have other things, both real and imaginary to, to be afraid of.
1: Right. So the first section of your book goes through the history of the moral panic towards RPGs, as we've done here. Uh, And then in the second section, you shift and you analyze the relationship between play, imagination, and the sacred. So let's start with your theory that fantasy paracosms, which is a word perhaps you can uh, define for us, um, can perform similar functions as religions in providing mental spaces where people can analyze and reflect upon their engagement with the real world. So what does this mean? And how does it work?
0: So paracosm is is basically an imaginary world, right? And And so the, the more kind of details are in the imaginary world, kind of the more the more pleasure um, that it, it it gives to people who want to think about it or tell stories about it or or, or whatever. Uh, so things like Narnia in C. S. Lewis's uh, fantasy novels, would Narnia is a, is a paracosm? Um, we don't usually think of things like the Star Wars universe as being a paracosm. um, But I think that the reason that or one reason that Star Wars fans like Star Wars so much is because it has so much detail. It has so many uh, cultures and traditions and technology, and they can kind of geek out uh, about all of this. So this is what I mean by a paracosm. And when you play Dungeons and Dragons, you are creating a paracosm, uh, even if it's just with, you know, four or five of your friends. and. Uh, if you meet DD players, you may have, you may meet some who have been playing for years, and the paracosm is is very built up and very significant and they have inside jokes about it and stories about their favorite adventures and and, and so forth. Um, and so I think one thing that we've learned from the sociology of religion is that even if imaginary worlds are not objectively real, uh, they have consequences and they kind of allow people to uh, reconsider, Uh, The social order, right? And so this is where I think the significance, the real significance of uh, role-playing games uh, uh, comes in, right? Um, Role-playing games gives a a mental space to kind of imagine the world as being ordered differently, and then that gives you kind of the the freedom or the experience to reassess the world um, as uh, as as it is, right? So so it it is a catalyst for uh, thinking about whether there are things you want to change and changing them, especially changing your attitudes. Um, and this would include, um, how you understand yourself. So one, a letter I was able to find, uh, while I was researching the book was, uh, from a, a veteran who said, you know, I learned, uh, everything that, that, you know, allowed me to, to, you know, complete missions for the military playing Dungeons and Dragons. That's how I learned that I could be tough and I could be brave. And I learned about teamwork and, and so forth. Uh, I even found people who said, uh, you know, when they go on blind dates and stuff, we'll try to kind of um, think about what their character would do in this situation. And that makes them feel more uh, more confident or outgoing or things like that. So having these, these imagined worlds can change your kind of attitude about yourself, but it can also change your attitude about the, the social order, right? So if you've been raised to think that, you know, um, your form of government or your religion or your uh, uh, culture is sort of the only or the best way to do things, um, th- these paracosms create a way of kind of testing that. And say, well, is that really true? And, and, and maybe it is, but maybe you could imagine something uh, different. So I think that these uh, these exercises in imagination are, in a way, uh, destabilizing, right? Or, or they create what I would call a sort of radical freedom and autonomy. And I think that the the, the moral entrepreneurs, the people who really attack Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I think on some level actually understood that, that the threat of this game was not that it was going to seduce people for Satan or something, but that it might make people say, question their parents and question their church, right? Because it it provided that kind of mental uh, freedom.
1: So I think, um, You've spent quite a bit of effort and the supporters of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs spend some effort, rightly so, making the point that, um, you know, players do understand the difference between what is real and what is imagination. Um, And yet there are some people who do attempt to pursue magic in the real world, and some of them also play Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, does that become a bit of a sticky point there? Or how do you see them fitting into this conversation?
0: Right. So, I mean, there's kind of a cause and effects question here, right? So so you do have people who um, actually practice ritual magic or they participate in in religions like uh, Wicca that are open to the idea of magic. Um, There are some great ethnographies of these subcultures, especially um, Persuasions of the Witch's Craft by Tanya Lerman. And one thing that she found in that book was people who participate in those religions often like to play D&D and other role-playing games. The question is, did D&D lead to magic or did magic lead to uh, uh, D&D? Um, I don't think that D&D necessarily leads anywhere. As I've been trying to persuade the audience, I think it creates this kind of radical autonomy. So uh, I think some people play D&D and conclude, well, I'm an atheist because this is all clearly uh, totally unbelievable. Fun to, fun to play with, but magic is clearly not real. Um, however, for some people, they would say, well, actually... D&D kind of makes me think about if magic did exist, what would it look like, right? How would it actually work? If it didn't work the way that it did in this game, how would it work differently? So I mentioned White Wolf. Um, Some of the people writing books for White Wolf were uh, involved in kind of magical traditions, right? Um, And one of the games that they made was called Mage, which was an attempt to kind of create a plausible uh, idea of, of magic, that that magic is basically a kind of extension of, uh, of the human will that certain people are able to tap into. And one of the creators of the game said, you know, when we made it, we actually uh, uh, kind of did this ritual in our warehouse to kind of magically uh, extend our will and make the game sell better. And he said, you know, I know that if the, the, the people who said D D was satanic knew that we were, Sort of magically hexing uh, our 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 mage books, uh, they would swallow their gum. Um, so so I think this is kind of shows how uh, these games can lead in a lot of directions. It can lead to strengthening traditional religions like Christianity. It can lead to atheism, or in some cases, it can lead to um, you know d- developing a kind of philosophy or a theory of of, of magic, as you saw with the game Mage.
1: So next you look at how the imagination has been denigrated or perceived as dangerous at various points throughout history. So for example, you talk about how the Enlightenment was condescending towards myth and fiction. Uh, capitalism is antagonistic towards unproductive leisure time. And religion has plenty of its own reasons to feel threatened by the imagination. So I I find this super interesting um, because I feel like this points to an eternal pattern, partly of the older generation feeling threatened by whatever the younger generation is playing at. Uh, they don't understand it. They're sure it must be bad, whatever it is, whatever time and contest we're talking about, right? And so when we look back at some of the pastimes people have wrung their hands over in the past, they're ridiculous. Uh, there was a point when novel reading novels was considered to be an, a horrible waste of time because it didn't give young people the space to think about who they were and mature into adults. And, you know, now we would give anything to have our teenagers just reading novels all the time. Um, So I think it helps us keep perspective on uh, whatever that trend is in our particular moment. Um, You know, now, especially um, the oldsters are really worried that social media is going to rot the kids' brains. Um, So uh, maybe more than the activities themselves. However, we're seeing evidence of how imaginative play is itself uh, what seems threatening to people. Is is that what you're seeing?
0: Right. So you know, to, to research this book, I had to read all the tracks I could find about the evils of Dungeons and Dragons. And a very common claim was that uh, nothing is actually imaginary. Right. That if you imagine you're fighting a monster there's actually a demon, right? A, a real demon has entered your mind and that's what that is. That's not your uh, imagination. Um, or if you are imagining your character is casting a spell, that's actually sort of satanic uh, magic moving through. So there was a there was a, a sort of uh, a claim that, that the imagination wasn't actually imaginary, right? That it was all real. It was an attempt to, to flatten out the distinction between real and imaginary. and. One thing that was especially telling was someone eventually basically just made the argument the imagination itself is evil and basically said the world as it exists right now is the world that God wants. And so if you imagine anything different from the way it is, you are defying God, right? So God wants fire engines to be red. If you imagine a blue fire engine, you are insulting God and God's creation. Um, and, And this is not a traditional attitude in Christianity at all. Uh, While I was researching this book, I discussed this with a Jesuit priest, and he said, Well, to become a Jesuit, I had to undergo the spiritual exercises, which is a profound um, uh, sort of mental exercise and imagination. And one of the spiritual exercises is you have to imagine the devil as as clearly as you possibly can. This is considered important training uh, uh, for becoming uh, a a Jesuit. And of course, going back to uh, texts like. Uh, Dante, or even mystics like Teresa of Avila, they talk about um, the imagination as something that comes from God or even a way that God can speak to us. Uh, And so something changed, something changed in Western Christianity to go from the imagination being something sacred and a gift from God to being something evil that basically needs to be stamped out. Uh, And so I tried to kind of figure out when did this happen, right? Where did this uh, uh, come from? Um, And there's a number of clues. One of them is the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment um, in kind of history of the interpretation of myth, uh, we see people for the first time in the Enlightenment basically saying myth has no value. It's not um, history that got exaggerated. It doesn't have some kind of moral truth to it. It's just false. And therefore, we should uh, uh, abandon it. Uh, I think the Puritans also uh, took a dim view of the imagination um, and saw it as potentially uh, uh, sin- sinful. So books like uh, Pilgrim's Progress begin with a kind of apology, saying, I know that things in the story are imaginary, but please bear with me because I'm doing it um, to inculcate good uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, values. Um, I think that um, uh, sort of capitalism and kind of Victorian attitudes uh, about the imagination being childish and unproductive uh, are, are telling. And I have quotes from, um, you know, Dickens, Mr. Gradgine, telling uh, uh, his students never, never fancy anything, right? Never, never do anything uh, imaginary. Um, so I'm not sure if there's an exact moment when this uh, happened, but definitely um, these, these uh, sort of evangelical attitudes about the imagination being something satanic uh, are new, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, so when I teach world religion, I really try to remind my students that Christianity is an ancient religion. It has not always been the way that it is presented to you uh, on a college campus in Texas in, in 2021.
1: So what do you think are the clear signs that this fear of imagination is a factor in the perception of the threat of RPGs?
0: Right. So so I think the closest to a smoking gun I found with this was an interview with, with Patricia Pulling, um, who is a uh, was, was from basically a secular Jewish uh, background. Uh, but, you know, she says, children don't understand the difference between uh, uh, imagination and reality, right? And, and again, going back to novels, the claim in the 18th century was, well, women can't read novels because women can't tell the difference between a novel and, and reality. So it's always some other group of people that are inferior to you and, and, and can't, uh, can't tell the difference. And a reporter just asked her, well, how do you know that? how do you, why do you assume kids can't tell the difference between real and imaginary? And she said, well, they believe in God, don't they? (laughs) Right. And I don't think that she meant to say God isn't real. Uh, but I, you know, she said, look, kids believe in God because we've, we've, you know, read them Bible stories and things like this, but they've never seen God empirically and they believe in it. And, and therefore, uh, you know, that they might come to believe that these, these fantasy games are real. And I found that to be kind of a smoking gun because if you flip it on its head, right, what this suggests is on some level, the moral entrepreneurs uh, saw Christianity as a kind of role-playing game, right? That the, 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 the fact that uh, children could kind of create this paracosm with these imaginary characters and even imaginary gods, uh, I think on some level they realize, well, what if that's what we're doing, right? What if our kind of deepest commitments Um, are, are in a sense, a kind of game that we're playing uh, uh, with each other. Uh, So I found that quote really uh, significant for uh, kind of figuring out what's actually going on with these claims about role-playing games.
1: Yeah, and that leads us into our next topic. Uh, Next, you look more closely at the phenomenon that you describe as corrupted play. And this is where the separate frames of fantasy and reality break down and become confused, uh, suggesting that it is in fact the moral entrepreneurs themselves who are victims of this condition, and then they project it onto others. So tell us more about how this works, and who you see as affected.
0: So the term corrupted play I took from uh, uh, Roger Calloy, who was another early uh, French ludologist. And, and basically his idea was that, um, you, you know, play is uh, separated from the realm of means and ends, right? So, so work, right? You, you work to uh, uh, feed your family and make money and so forth, and you play just for the sake of play. Uh, but he would say that sometimes play becomes corrupted and the game becomes invested in the, the realm of means and ends. So uh, a stark example of this would be gambling, right? You were supposed to gamble purely for recreation, but gambling addicts, right? This is now, um, that's become their whole life, right? If they don't win at the table, uh, they're going to lose their house or something like that. So the, the play of gambling has become corrupted. It's not for fun anymore. It has become uh, a real. Um, so with games of imagination... Um, I I think the people who play Dungeons and Dragons are actually very good at keeping the imaginary realm separate from the real realm. The critics of Dungeons and Dragons, I think, are are pretty bad at this, right? And so a a lot of them seem to, uh, a lot of the the kind of moral entrepreneurs who are creating these claims, not the ones who are passing on what they heard in church, but who are creating the claims, uh, seem to be... uh, liars. (laughs) Liars, right? <laughs> Seem to have real difficulty uh, uh, telling the truth. Uh, so Patricia Pulling, for example, said, "You know, uh, after my son's suicide, I had to find out more about this game. So I went to the local college and I found some kids playing D and D, and then I played with them forty hours a week for the next three months or something like this, right? Um, this story is definitely false. I mean, I don't know what would happen if uh, a forty-year-old woman just appeared on a college campus and asked to play." Uh, a D&D with with some kids. That, that's kind of an implausible story in itself. Nobody plays D&D for 40 hours a week. I mean, just nobody. Uh, and then she didn't. She clearly didn't know anything about even the most basic rules of the game. So this was clearly a lie. Um, similarly, William Deere uh, said things that I think are, uh, you know, lies. Uh, but an even bigger example of this would be somebody like um, William Schnobelin, uh, who crusaded against Dungeons & Dragons, William Schnoblin claimed that um, he had been uh, a Mormon bishop, that he had been a Wiccan high priest, that he had uh, been some kind of Catholic authority, that he had been a a leader in all these other religions, and this was how he knew that they were all evil um, and that you had to be an evangelical. William Schnoblin even said uh, that he had been a literal vampire, that he had subsisted on human blood and could not go in the sunlight because of his involvement with Satanism. Uh, until an an evangelical blessed him and restored his his humanity. So unsurprisingly, William Schnoblin said, I designed Dungeons and Dragons when I was an evil Satanist vampire. You know, I I made sure that the game was suitably evil and would suitably seduce children into the occult. That's just simply not true. Um, And so the people who, uh, and I question, what is the purpose of all of these lies, Right. Um, because all of these moral entrepreneurs are basically creating a fantasy world where uh, they alone are kind of lone warriors against the forces of evil, and they alone are kind of taking on uh, satanic conspiracies and even literal uh, demons. And it just occurred to me, that's what you do in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Dungeons and Dragons is where you get to be a warrior fighting against evil. But you know, the, the kids playing D&D have the wherewithal to say, this is imaginary and we're doing it for fun. For somebody like William Snowball in that play has been corrupted. So I think he is having the same pleasure uh, from uh, having his fantasy life, but for him, the fantasy has become uh, a, a delusion, right? And, and I think that one reason why they are so bad at separating fantasy from reality is because of the suspicion of the imagination. If the imagination is, is feared, uh, then your impulses towards fantasy and wanting to live in a kind of mythic realm uh, do not come out in a healthy way, uh, like in a role-playing game. They come out through basically uh, uh, lies and, and and delusion. So that's how I would explain the irony that all these people warning d will make you lose your mind uh, seem to be very uh, challenged when it comes to um, staying in reality.
1: Yes. And you suggest uh, the idea that adopting a religious worldview is engaging in its own kind of fantasy role playing. So tell us what you mean by that and how it affects the way religious people live their lives.
0: Right. So so this was um, Huizinga's argument. I mentioned Huizinga earlier in, in the interview, and, and his theory was sort of uh, people create these play worlds uh, spontaneously, and then eventually um, if a community, if its play world sort of becomes real enough that that becomes a set of rituals and it becomes their religion and it's how they, um, you know, kind of create social norms for their their whole society and sort of anchor their their values and things like this. So I think that you could see um, a religion as kind of a crystallized form of, of play. And I don't mean this as a slight on religion. I don't mean to say that religion is not significant or not, important or or bad or anything like that, uh, but I think that it, it should be understood sociologically as a profound expression of the human imagination. Uh, and I think that on some level, that's partly why uh, games of the imagination bothered some religious people, is because it was sort of a reminder of the things that you take for granted as reality are, in fact, products of the human imagination.
1: So... As I mentioned earlier, you published this book in 2015, so before the Trump era. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think that some of the phenomena you describe has some real explanatory power for some of the things we're seeing today. So for example, you talk about how in the 1980s, conspiracy theories about subversion narratives evolved to focus on the specter of, and here's a quote from the book, imagined networks of criminal Satanists. So to the letter, this pretty much exactly describes what the QAnon conspiracies of today are about. And also QAnoners follow and interpret Q drops and engage with each other in a fantasy world of their own construction in ways that we might see as similar to role playing games. I couldn't get this out of my head as I was reading your book. So I wondered if if you must be, too, are you thinking about these parallels when you turn on the news?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very significant that the word LARPing, which, meant, which originally meant a live action role-playing game, so people actually dressing up in costumes and things like that. Today, in the internet parlance, LARP basically means you've lost touch with reality, right? So when people say uh, QAnoners are LARPers, what they mean by that is that their, their claims are false, that they have kind of deceived uh, themselves. Um, and there, in, in my field of new religious movements, there's a lot of discussion of is QAnon uh, a, a, a cult, right? Is it, is it a new religious movement? And you know, most scholars said, well, it really isn't because it's so loose and there's no founder to QAnon and things like this. And and some people have said, well, it's it's almost it's like a crowdsourced cult. That's that's what one journalist in the in the New Yorker called it, a crowdsourced Cult, So I do see QAnon as being a form of corrupted play. Uh, You know, people talk about people involved in QAnon conspiracy as being brainwashed. I don't think that they're brainwashed. I think they're responsible for their own uh, choices. But I do think that we we forget that there is great pleasure in QAnon, right? The, The Q drops would just be these weird little cryptic messages. And then the whole community would sort of interpret what must this mean? And this must be the plan and so forth. And this clue must refer to this. They're doing that because it brings them pleasure and because they enjoy interacting with each other uh, online. So in some ways, I think the QAnon really is similar to uh, a game like Dungeons and Dragons. It is a group of people uh, creating a paracosm in which Biden is not the president of the United States and Wayfair catalogs are selling children as slaves, and who knows what all else? Uh, uh, you know, adrenochrome and Jewish space lasers, and and all of it. They're creating this paracosm, and I think they're doing it at least on some level for for fun, um, and to feel like they are living in a mythic realm and like thing that things are under control instead of being uh, complicated and a, a world defined by by chaos. So in many ways, it's similar. The the difference is. Uh, they, do, they will not admit that what they are doing is a game. That's the big difference, where in a game of Dungeons and Dragons, no matter how crazy or distasteful it gets, all the players agree this is only a game. With QAnon, you don't have that, and that's what leads to things like the insurrection on on January 6th.
1: Right. Well, on a more positive note, you mentioned that Gygax had originally pictured his game being made specifically for children. Um, I actually saw uh, a news article, I can't remember where now, um, or what town it was focused on, but uh, on a school, an elementary school that was using Dungeons & Dragons for exactly what you'd think it would be good at teaching, uh, teamwork, uh, imaginative play, thinking through p- problem solving, understanding probability. And this elementary school had recognized all of the wonderful things that D&D can offer kids and had incorporated it into their classroom. And so this um, just goes to show how far we've come because the reporting on it was very celebratory. There was absolutely no shred of, of this satanic panic lingering at all in the coverage. So,
0: yeah, it's really interesting that Dungeons and Dragons has gone completely into the the mainstream, right? And is now being celebrated. I'm also really excited that uh, the game has opened up to, to women because it used to really be a, a boys club um, in the 70s and, and, and 80s. And that's, uh, I think, changed the game for, for the better. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting. I, the day will come when I am this old man trying to explain, you know, in my day d and was satanic, and no one will believe me. Um, the day isn't quite here yet, but it's, it's fast coming.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, Joe, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for coming back so quickly to come on the show and talk about this book with us, because I so enjoyed reading about it. Uh, before you go, though, tell us, what are you working on now?
0: Uh, currently, I'm working on a a book for R- Rutledge called New Religious Movements, The Basics, which will just be an introduction to the field of uh, the study of new religious movements. And I also have a book under contract called The Exorcist Effect, which is looking at how uh, horror movies uh, influence things like the Satanic Panic of the 1980s.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book. Glad to have a chance to talk with you about it in person, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Joseph Laycock about his new book, Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds. If you'd like to find out more about Joe, you can visit his Google site, linked on this episode's blog post on our website, or discovered by Googling Joseph Laycock. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Do you play role-playing games? Have you ever experienced any kind of discrimination because of it? Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at CarrieLinLand. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism.